theyeshiva.net. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, knew all along this would not be an easy task. It's why he tried to get out of it again and again. When God, when Hashem summons Moshe, Moses, at the burning bush in the weekly portion of Shmois, and he asks him to embark on a mission to set the Jewish people free, Moshe Rabbeinu rejects the invite. He says the people will deem him as a charlatan, as being dishonest. They will not believe me. They will not listen to me. They will say that God has never appeared to you. This is all fake news. What does Hashem do to respond to Moshe's fear and concern? That they're going to claim that he's just a fake, a phony. It's all a spill. How many people in history came to the masses and said, I had a vision, God appeared to me. They're not going to believe me, Moshe says. So, as chapter 4 of Exodus, Perig Dalet of Shmois tells the story, Hashem gives Moshe three signs to perform for the people. First thing is, Hashem says to Moshe, what is in your hand? He says, a staff. God says, cast it to the ground. Moshe takes the stick and casts it to the ground. It becomes a nachash, a serpent. Moshe runs away from it. Hashem says to Moshe, no, stretch forth your hand and take hold of its tail. So Moshe stretches forth his hand and he grasps the tail of the snake and it becomes once again a staff in his hand. And as the verse continues, so that they will believe you. This is the first sign. Then Hashem says to Moshe, I want you to put your hand into your bosom. So Moshe takes his hand and he puts it into his bosom. He takes it out. And Yadai Mitzayras Kashalak. Looks like he's a leper. His hand is white like snow. Shem says, put your hand back into your bosom. He puts his hand back into his bosom. When he takes out his hand of his bosom again, it has become like regular, normal flesh. Then, God tells Moshe, you shall take water of the Nile and spill it upon the dry land, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry land. These are the three signs, the three initial wondrous, miraculous events that Hashem entrusts into Moshe's hands in order to perform in Egypt for the purpose that the people, the people of Israel, should not be able to say, this is bluff, this is fake news, they should be able to embrace. What I want to ask you today is, are these just cute, charming fun, divine magic tricks. We take a snake, st- stick, becomes a snake, becomes a stick. We take our hand, suddenly became white like snow, then it's normal flesh. We take water, it becomes blood. Or is there a deeper message or theme or meaning behind this? H- how are we supposed to understand this? So I want to present to you one possible thematic interpretation that gives new depth to the story based on various of the Mepharshim, various of the commentators throughout these portions that deal with the Egyptian exile, bondage, and then the ultimate redemption. 
I'm also thankful to my dear colleague, Rabbi David Foreman, for his classes and writings, lovely classes and writings on this subject. For this, you have to really read through the story and read through the story very carefully. And then a deeper theme emerges. Why did Moshe reject the mission? What was he afraid of? God says, I want to send you to liberate the people. You say, great, I'm going. Just out of simple empathy. But Moshe explains why he doesn't want to go. He is daunted by three major concerns that really make him feel that he should not be doing this. First of all, he says, the people won't believe me. They won't listen to me. They're going to say God never appeared to me. Fake news. Remember, the people have been oppressed for so long. They're accustomed to the norms of slavery. They're accustomed to bondage, to oppression. They won't believe him. They're downtrodden. They're dejected. They're weak. They're crushed. They may not even be capable of hearing a voice of liberation, of emancipation. Second, Moshe was also afraid for himself. He felt he is not suited for a task of such magnitude. The Torah says that Moshe says to Hashem, This is in Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush. He says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt? Where do I come to fill such incredibly big shoes? And he continues, he says, God, I beseech you, I'm not a man of words, neither from yesterday, nor from the day before yesterday, nor from the time that you have spoken to your servant. I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. But there's a third concern. Moshe is afraid of Parai. He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of himself. Am I up to this task? I can't even speak. I can't even articulate my words. But he's also afraid of the king. How can he, an ordinary person with a speech disability, confront and triumph over the most powerful man in the world, the monarch of Egypt, which was considered somewhat of the superpower of the time? Why would Pari listen to me, as he says? He says to God, how can Pari listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? I'm plugged. You want Paroi? Paroi is going to obey me. He's going to respond to me. As it turns out, Moshe was cracked on all three counts. Despite his initial success in persuading the people, when he comes to Egypt, they believe him. Things soon start to go very wrong and they continue downhill. He was right. Furthermore, Moshe's first appearance before Paroi is disastrous. Not only does the king reject Moshe's request to let the people travel into the wilderness for a holiday, he makes life much worse for the Israelites. They must still make the same quota of bricks, but now they have to gather their own straw. The people turn against Moshe and Aaron. As the Pesach says at the end of Shmois, they tell him, may God look at you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pare and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to murder us. Moshe and Aaron return to Pare to renew their request. They perform a sign. They turn a staff into a snake. 
Pari is unimpressed. His own magicians can do the same thing. They can also take a stack, stack, stick and turn it into a serpent. Next, they bring the first of the plagues, where the water of the Nile indeed turns into blood. In other words, they do the first and third sign that Hashem showed Moshe when they first met at the burning bush. You remember the three signs? The first and third sign they do for Parah. The stick becomes a snake and then the water becomes blood. But Parah is not moved. He will not let the Hebrew slaves go. And so it goes on and on nine times. Moshe does everything in his power and finds that nothing makes a difference. The Israelites are still slaves. We can sense when we read the story, if I can express myself so, the terrible pressure and pain that Moshe is experiencing. experiencing after his first setback, when Parai increased the torture, the bondage, at the end of Shemais, he turns to Hashem and he complains bitterly. He says, Why have you brought, brought such trouble on this people? And why did you send me? Ever since I went to Pare to speak in your name, he has brought more trouble on his people. You have not rescued your people at all. Hashem has reassured him that he will eventually succeed. God says, you'll see, it's going to be good. I will remain loyal to my promise and my covenant. But the Torah says, when Moshe comes back to the Jewish people now, they cannot listen to Moshe because of the shortness of their breath and because of their crushing hard labor. Moshe turns to Hashem and says, if the Jews will not listen to me, why would Pare listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? If the Jews can't listen, you expect the king of Egypt to listen to me? Alas, all of Moshe's initial fears were confirmed. The people rejected him. He is really inadequate for his calling. And Parai will not be taken down. Parai is not budging. Moshe is not the one who can accomplish this with Parai. Ah, now, when you study this narrative, we can appreciate the three original signs which Hashem showed Moshe when they first met at the burning bush. And the following insight into the meaning of the signs is based on a commentary known as Nachalas Yaakov on Parsha Shmois and on Parsha's Vayetze. It was written by one of the great rabbinic figures of the 18th and 19th century, Rabbi Yaakov, known as Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa. Rabbi Yaakov ben Rabbi Yaakov Moshe, Lorberbaum of Lisa. He was born in 1760. He passed away in 1832. He is well known in the world of Torah learning of the yeshiva as the author of the classic halachic work, the Nesivos. Nesivos HaMishpat, which means the pathways of justice, as well as Mekar Chaim, the source of life, Chavaz Das, showing knowledge, among many other works. In 1809, he became the rabbi of Lisa, which is today known as Lizna, L-E-S-Z-N-O. It's in Poland. There he built a major yeshiva, and he is considered to be one of the great sages of Polish Jewry during his time, often just known as the Nesivis. People call him the Nesivis, and as often the case, authors become known by the name of their book, and people don't even know their name. But this was his classic commentary on Chesh and Mishpat, 
which is the fourth section of the Jewish Code of Law that deals with civil law, monetary issues, partnership, etc. So the insights on the follow the following insight is based somewhat on his Sefer Nachlos Yaakov by Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa the Nesivis Hamishpat. The insight into the third sign is also based on the above, and as I mentioned before, an insight and reading by my dear colleague Rabbi Foreman. What was the first sign? Hashem tells Moshe, what is in your hand? He says, a staff. He says, cast it to the ground. He casts it to the ground. It becomes a snake. Moshe runs away. God says, no, hold on to the tail. Moshe holds on to the tail. It becomes a staff in his hand. The words that God tells Moshe, Hashem tells Moshe, what is in your hand? So he says, a staff. Now, the Torah calls the staff of Moshe, the divine staff. It's so clearly Shmois Perikud Zion, Exodus chapter 17, calls it the divine staff. This was the staff with which Moshe would confront Parai, perform all the miracles. Hashem told them initially, take this staff, and with this staff in your hand, you will perform the signs. But now, God tells Moshe to cast it to the ground, and it's transformed into a snake. Moshe runs away. What happens? When it's thrown into the dirt, even a sacred staff will turn into a scary serpent. The stick is intrinsically sacred. It's called Matayel Akim, it's God's stick. But the harsh impact of the fall to the ground and the dirt and the gravel and the filth of the earth can cause even something so sacred as God's staff to appear as a venomous snake. The symbolism was acute. The Jewish people are sacred. They're divine. They're holy. They are God's stick in this world. In fact, the Jews are called matos. The tribes are called matos, which means sticks. A mata means a tribe, and the tribes of Israel are called matos. They are God's sticks in the world, chosen to be his ambassadors, to execute his will, to carry out his purpose. They are the king's scepter, the sharvet hazov. But this holy stick has been cast down into the ground. A proud people has been subjected to enormous humiliation and agony. The trauma and suffering of Egyptian bondage caused them to become despondent and give up hope. Now they emit bitterness and venom. They may even bite you. This is not who they are. It happened because they were cast into an abyss subjected to oppression, persecution, slave labor, torture, and death of their children. Moshe ran away from the snake as he fled from the thought of leadership over an oppressed and bitter people. He already had an experience when he tried saving a Jew from an Egyptian oppressor. Other Jews informed on him. And as we're going to see, Paru was brilliant in the sense that Jews were unaware that the abuse was coming from the top. We'll soon see. Was an informer not compared to a snake? Someone who kills with the venom of his mouth? Isn't that what a snake does? A musser, an informer, and a snake are exactly the same thing. Moshe was bitten by the snake. He remembered in his youth when he tried to save a Jew from an Egyptian, and what happened? He killed the Egyptian, he saved the Jew, and then a Jew informed on him to Pharaoh. And Moshe was almost murdered. He had to run away to Midian. He had to flee Egypt. Moshe already had experience. 
This is not easy. And God does not disagree with Moshe. God does not say that the snake is not venomous, the snake is not scary, but he shows Moshe a profound truth. Trauma causes us to often lose our innate identity, to forfeit our inner beauty and sacredness. The scars and wounds and frustrations and bitterness and disappointment and sadness and agony and suffering and pain of life cause people to become misaligned with their higher angels. They lose impulse control. They're reacting from their amygdala, from their reptilian brains, if you want to use that language. They're not fully aligned with themselves, with their own power. The people are not bad. But you have to understand the distress that they're in and the tears that they have endured. Don't judge them. Don't dismiss them. Don't cast them away. Don't be afraid of them. And don't run away from them. They are God's staff. I know your instinct is to run away very, very far. You're afraid of that snake. Don't be afraid. The last thing they need from you is to be afraid of them. You remain there and you hold on to them. Stretch forth your hand and hold on to its tail. You know what you need to do? Lift them up. Take that snake and lift it up. Lift them up from the earth and the scary snake will suddenly become God's staff. Lift them up from their tail. Do not be afraid even of the tail end of the snake, the lowest part of the serpent. If you can only lift it up, if you can extract it from the dirt and show it its potential, elevate it to a more sublime place, show it its possibilities, the pristine divine holiness will emerge. At this point, they may not believe in themselves. How can they believe in you, God tells Moshe? You want them to believe in you. They don't believe in themselves. You want them to believe in you. They see themselves as snakes, as serpents, as venomous. Moshe, show them a vision of who they can be, of who they really are, and they will live up to it. Then comes the second sign. What was the second sign? Put your hand into your bosom. He puts his hand into his bosom. He takes it out. The hand is now mitzayras kashalag, like he's a leper, it's white snow. Shem says, put your hand back in your bosom. He puts it back in his bosom. He takes it out. It returned to normal flesh. There's a powerful pasuk in Tehillim, a powerful verse in Psalms chapter 74. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Draw it out from within your bosom. In the Tanakh, holding your hand in your bosom symbolizes confining your influence, suppressing your potential, holding back your power. That's why the psalmist says in chapter 74, why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out from your bosom. Take it out from your chekecha. Let's see it. Let's see your influence. Let's see your power. You remember this the verse in the Song of Songs? Yoinosi my dove is hiding in the clefts of the rock, under a hidden step. You know, the, 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 the bird is so afraid to get caught, to get hurt, so the bird is, hang, is hiding in that rock, in the cleft of the rock, in the secret of the step. And the doidi says, the lover says, Show me your countenance, let me hear your voice, your voice is so sweet. And your countenance, so beautiful, so delicious. 
Was this not what Moshe was doing? Obscuring his radiance and potential? Living in isolation when he can change the world? Is this not what Moshe was doing? Keeping his hand tucked into his bosom? There's also an expression in Yiddish, Fegelach in bosom. It's a lovely Yiddish expression, which literally means don't deceive yourself, don't tell yourself uh, fake stories like birds in the bosom. You can't keep birds in the bosom. They're not made to be in the bosom. Your wallet you can keep in your bosom. You could keep a pen in your bosom. You can keep a piece of paper in your bosom. Why is your hand in your bosom? Your hand is made to change the world. Isn't this what Moshe is doing? Moshe's reluctance is logical. He's a spiritual giant. Why would he abandon a life of heavenly transcendence, shepherding the flock of his father-in-law in the desert, surrounded by Mother Nature, immersed in meditation and singing the praises of God, marveling at the beauty of God's world? Why would he now choose to become a leader of a challenging and stubborn nation, remaining tucked in the bosom of the cosmos, would seem to be the road to perfection. It would seem to be the logical thing to do. As your grandmother would say, you don't take a healthy head and put it into a sick bed. Moshe knew a thing or two about the Jewish people. We mentioned earlier the informers that he had to deal with for which he almost died. Moshe had a hunch of all the Dassons and the Aviroms and the Kairachs and the grouchy complainers and rabble-rousers who will not stop staging mutinies and revolts and screaming at him and hollering at him and insulting at him to the point that later he's going to say, they're going to stone me. Remember, Moshe is not somebody who's looking for attention. He's not an attention seeker. He doesn't have problems with self-confidence, avoid, and he needs people to validate him. Some people chose, choose leadership because of a deep insecurity. I need everybody to know me. I need everybody to compliment me. I need everybody to applaud me. I need everybody to say how great I am. Moshe is not that person. For him, leadership is a punishment. He's in a desert, commuting in communion with nature, with transcendence, in an innocent and pure world with sheep who don't sin and are not corrupt and are very docile and compassionate and lovely animals. The road to perfection remains in the bosom. So Hashem shows Moshe that the truth was otherwise. Hiding your hands in your bosom turns you into a leper. You know why? Because now you assume responsibility for all the things that you could have prevented as a result of your leadership. Or as the Gemara puts it in Shabbos, If I can make a difference, and yet I decide to stay in the bosom, I assume partial responsibility. Your hands are now white. They are lifeless. They are drained of their blood and their vitality. Because to shirk responsibility, even for noble reasons, is to detach from your source of life, from your soul's oxygen. The life of spiritual insulation can at times be compared to the leper. What is the law of the leper? Badad Yeshev. He is quarantined. No pun intended. The leper is quarantined. That was the law of the leper. Badad Yeshev. He was also isolated. But nobody saw that as a compliment. It was considered a terrible predicament. Because of his or her state of tzaras, of leprosy, 
I know that leprosy is not the accurate translation for tzeraz, but I'm just using the best English word we have for it. Because of his or her horrible skin disease, they had to leave the camp and go into isolation. They were in isolation. They remained in the bosom. But this was a sign of leprosy. Moshe must realize that for a person who can change the world, who can lead the nation, who could transform the landscape of civilization and liberate the slaves and bring them from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, from grief to rejuvenation and jubilation, for such a person to say, I want to be isolated. This is a form of a death sentence because I'm killing my potential, my soul's calling, my destiny, my vocation, abandoning my mission in the world. Moshe must reinvent himself and his perception of his destiny. He must put his hand back into his bosom and change course indeed. When he took it out of his bosom, it had become again normal flesh. Moshe can't remain in hiding any longer. When you're given a calling in life, squandering it, even for the most noble and holy of reasons, is a sin. This is why the first time around it says Moshe took his hand out and it was white. It doesn't say he took his hand out of his bosom. The second time around, the Torah changes the language. When he took it out of his bosom, it became again like normal flesh. Why this change? Because the first time around, he physically removed his hand from his bosom. But this was simply a physical motion, not a change of philosophy. The second time around, Moshe took his hand out of his bosom. He became a new person. He discovered that now it was time for him to actualize his potential, to assume the responsibility of changing the course of history. Never run from your calling. Never suppress your potential. Never keep your hands tucked away in your bosom. Lama soshiv yadcha v'yimincha mikerev chekecha chalei. We addressed his fear with the people. We addressed his fear with himself. But how can I take on the mighty and seemingly indestructible Pare? How do I do that? For this, God gives him one more message. Take the water of the Nile. Spill it upon the dry land. And the water that you take from the Nile, they will become blood on the dry land. This is, of course, also the first of the ten plagues to befall Egypt. Why was this the first plague? Why is this sign so important? Isn't it just, just another magic trick? We take the water, pour it down on the ground, becomes blood, okay, wonderful. And this becomes the first and famous plague, Dam, the opening of all the ten plagues, the water becomes blood. To appreciate the significance of this, we must learn a little bit about the Nile. Now we're going to have a short lesson about the Nile. The Nile River is approximately 4,000 miles long. 4,184 miles long. It's assumed to be the longest river in the world. There is some debate over this title. Some scientists argue that the Amazon River, the Amazon River in South America, is a longer river. But it's a close competition between the Nile and the Amazon. 
It stretches as long as the distance from Warsaw to New York. Did you know that? Yeah. The Nile stretches literally the distance from Warsaw, Poland to New York. And its story begins in the western desert of Egypt. You see, here there is no water. There is no rain. It's a Martian landscape. It doesn't, it's not conducive for inhabitants, except for a few scattered oases. It's a Sharon playground for dust storms and for locusts, where shovel-snouted lizards dance on two feet to avoid the scorching sands of midday. This is Egypt without the Nile. Small wonder that the ancient Egyptians prized and venerated the Nile River. It was their god. As the Medrash Rashi, the commentators point out again and again, they worshipped the Nile, literally. How can a river be a god? Because the Nile single-handedly saved their civilization. How did the Nile allow the ancient Egyptians to live and farm on dry desert land? The answer is that the river flooded every single August. And when it did, all the nutrient-rich soil carried in the water spread across the riverbanks, leaving a thick, moist mud perfect for growing crops. From its cooling waters came a tremendous diversity of fish, and not just fish, fish, perch fish bigger than the fishermen. From its loamy riverbanks came mud used for bricks and papyrus for books and boats. The river and its banks became home to lots of extraordinary wildlife too, including many diverse fish and birds, turtles, snakes, hippos, and one of our planet's largest reptiles, the Nile crocodile. Indeed, the prophet Yecheskel, Prophet Ezekiel in the Haftarah of Eir compares Pharaoh to the awesome crocodile crouching in the Nile. Now most people, you know, you read these chapters in Tanakh and the Haftarah, we don't even take note of it. But think, why would Ezekiel use this as a metaphor? Hatanin hagodel haroivitz b'soichir. If you want to understand Pharaoh, look at the crocodile in the Nile. The Nile became the umbilical cord for Egypt. Each year in August, to this very day, they have a two-week holiday called Wafa Anail to celebrate the ancient flooding of the Nile, a vital natural event which allowed their civilization to grow and prosper. Even today, a common blessing in Egypt is may you always drink from the Nile. The Nile no longer floods each year because in 1970, the Aswan High Dam was built. This huge dam controls the flow of the river to generate electricity irrigate farms, and provide homes with drinking water. This fascinating river remains an invaluable source of life for Egyptians to this very day. More than 95% of the country's population depends on its water and live within a few miles of the riverbanks. But there was another darker side to the Nile. The Nile looked like a most exquisite and beautiful water. But what was the truth? The truth was that the Nile was really a river of blood. It was not a river 
of water. As the Torah says in Exodus chapter 1, Pare told his entire nation, you shall cast every male born into the Nile. The Ramban, the great 13th century physician, leader, sage, Talmudist, rabbi, philosopher in Spain, explains the verse. The Torah says, Pare told his whole nation, cast every male born into the Nile. And this is what he explains. He says this was not an instruction to his soldiers or his police force. He doesn't say he told his policemen. It was an instruction to his entire nation. Pare did not show his true colors to the people of Israel. He wanted them to think that he is benign. He can work with them. That's why the Jews get so upset at Moshe and Aaron for causing Pirate to hate us. Because his evil plans were executed stealthily so the Jews would not revolt against him. Pirate was brilliant. The Jews thought he's a good guy, he's benign. He never made an official decree against them. He wanted they should think they could work with him. This was Pari's brilliant psychology, fascinating inside of the Ramban. So he did not command the executioners to take Jewish babies and throw them into the Nile. No, he said to the nation that when each of them, any of them, might find a Jewish boy, cast him into the Nile. Now, the father, the mother, is going to come crying to the king, crying to the municipal authorities. They would say, okay, bring witnesses. And then we can avenge the killer. Of course, there was no evidence. There were no witnesses. The Nile covered all the evidence. No corpse was ever discovered. The king would say, I would love to punish him. Show me, but I need some evidence. We had a baby, we have pictures. No pictures in Egypt. At least not uh, three and a half thousand years ago. So where's the evidence? Show me the corpse. (laughs) You can't show me the corpse, it's in the Nile. Are there Egyptian witnesses that he killed them? There's no witnesses. Amachaya. So there was no officially targeted person that was killing the Jewish babies. No, this was a command to the nation. This, says Nachman, and he says the Ramban, was a secret genocide. Paroi officially was a fine man. He even claimed that some of his best friends were Jewish. But the masses of Egyptians, in whom he planted a hatred to the Hebrews, knew that they had a right to cast Jewish boys into the Nile, and no penalties, no consequences would come their way. What did Parai use to cover his traces? How would Parai be able to remain this good person? The German con- Germans conceived of the crematoriums to hide the evidence. What did Parai use to hide the evidence of what he's doing in Egypt? And the answer is, you guessed it, the Nile. The beautiful and splendid river continued to flow. Its lush, fresh, sparkling waters conveyed an air of serenity, tranquility, and peace. Sunrise came, and the warm sun rays mixed with the bluish royal color of the Nile. The Egyptians sat at their beloved river, as they still do today, drinking pina colada, reading Schopenhauer, and listening to Bach. People would take their beach chairs, go out to the Nile, Bring some drinks, bring some toys, bring the kids. These, were jo- these people were jogging. These were playing frisbee or ball. And these were relaxing and enjoying that magical synthesis of the sun rays with the bluish smile, looking at the splendid river. 
enjoying the ambiance, appreciating the atmosphere, and enjoying the book they were reading, or the drink they were tasting, or the conversation they were having with their family members and friends. The Nile was the propaganda machine of ancient Egypt. Not like, not unlike the propaganda machines created and perfected in Stalinist Russia, in the Germany of Joseph Goebbels, in the China of Mai Tung, and in Paul, Paul Potts, Cambodia. And not unlike the propaganda and contemporary Islamist regimes who have each created their own Niles to cover up unspeakable crimes against innocent people, and sometimes even in a more civilized countries, where people know how to cover up traces of lies and falsehood and deception. As the Egyptians are sitting in their beach chairs, listening to wonderful classic music, under the stunning bed of water lay an unspeakable crime. By day, the Nile is a paradise of serenity, a paradise of tranquility, of love, of romance, of enlightenment. At night, or even by day at some locations, the Nile is a killing field. The Nile is a war zone. The Nile is a cemetery for innocent Jewish babies. As the pure small bodies are cast into the Nile, the sparkling bluish water covers up the cries, the moans, And the bodies, the river, was one bloody hell. And its beautiful bed eclipsed one of the most horrific crimes in the history of humanity. With the third sign to Moshe and the first plague to befall Egypt, God uncovered the truth, unbeknownst to anybody but Parai and his people. Nobody knew this. There were no traces of any bodies. Oh, you said you had a baby? <laughs> the Jews knew about the crime. Parai knew about the crime. His people knew about the crime. But the dark, deep secret of the Nile continued to prevail. What was its dark, deep secret? That it was a blood-soaked river. But the blood was under the surface. All the corpses were below. But then this dark, steep secret rose to the surface. The venerated God of Egypt, the beautiful Nile, the source of life and prosperity, was a hiding place for unspeakable cruelty. God showed Moshe, and then to the entire land of Egypt, that it was all a lie, and that you can't hide your big, fat lies from the ultimate source of truth. You may fool the world much of the time, most of the world, all the time, all of the world, some of the time, but God knows everything. You cannot hide behind your propaganda to eclipse your bloody evil. Parai is powerful, but the truth is more powerful. You will not be able to hide your lies forever. Ultimately, this river will emerge for what it really is. A cemetery filled with blood. With the miracle of the Nile, God showed Parai that I know everything. The sinister schemes will not be hidden forever. Parai, you are mighty, but reality will prevail. 
Such is its nature. It's real. Reality prevails. The blood on the bottom of the Nile will rise to the top and it will bring your downfall, even if not as fast as we would crave. The stain of blood would appear everywhere. The evil will be exposed. The Jews would learn the truth. All the Jews would learn the truth. The Jews knew what's happening to their babies, but they didn't know where it's coming from. Many Egyptians' bystanders who did not know would learn the truth. The true color of Parai, the color of blood, and his regime would come to the surface. Redemption would begin. These three signs contain a timeless lesson for each of us. The holiest staff in the world can behave like a snake if it's cast into the mud, if it's traumatized by suffering, if it's entrenched in filth. Don't fear it. Lift it up from the ground, caress it, and it will be metamorphosized. You may have a child, a friend, a relative, a disciple, who sometimes looks scary. You don't think redemption might ever be possible. You don't think they can ever listen to you. You don't think they could ever believe in anything. You want to run away. You don't want to confront this person. Hashem tells Moshe and he tells the Moshe inside of us, fear not what seems like a serpent. Lift it up, lift it up. Then comes the second lesson. I tell myself, I'm just a nobody. I'm a simple guy. I'm a simple woman. I'm a simple man. I'm a simple child, teen, older person. I can't make a difference. I have been tucked away throughout my entire life. Let me remain that way forever. Let me keep my hands tucked away comfortably in my bosom. Let me hide in my bosom so that nobody will see me. But the problem is you don't even see yourself in life. And in today's world, this is not an option. God says, show me your countenance. Allow me to hear your voice. You have such a beautiful voice and such an extraordinary countenance. You have so much goodness. There's so much in you to give, to teach. You are an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom, redemption. Please, don't run away from your potential. The world is waiting for your music. Humanity is waiting for your light. And that one individual whose life you can touch is waiting for your embrace and for your magical touch of love and gestures of kindness and wisdom. Finally, you may fear the various pharaohs in your life and in the world. You may fear to tackle injustice, abuse, corruption, Violence, lies, falsehood, narcissism, selfishness, domestic abuse, child abuse of children or of young people or of anybody. How can you take on the powerful Pharaoh? How can you take on the powerful Nile? Remember, God knows everything. Nobody can hide behind the Nile forever to escape their bloody evil. As long as you are loyal to truth, fear not, reality always prevails. Such is its nature. Those are the three signs God shows Moshe the first moment, addressing his three major fears, the fear of the people, the fear of himself, and the fear of Parai. Those are the three signs that still inspire us three and a half thousand years later, each one in our own way, to bring healing and redemption to the world. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. 
please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.